0: Well, if you've been with us for the last several weeks, we've been actually several months, we've been studying 1 Timothy and most recently, by guys. What a cute walk. We've been studying, uh, we began studying the office of elder overseer last week as we began chapter 3. Uh, and one of the things that I really should have done last week and I didn't do very well is is basically I did make this statement. You can, you can look here in 1 Timothy and you find qualifications or characteristics that, that are expected to be found in someone who is brought into this office of elder or overseer. But what I want to say to you, this, and, and, and if you look at First Timothy, there also there is a list of attributes that would be, would be granted toward these men. But as you look through there, you can see there's a lot of overlapping, but at the same time there's some unique factors in each one of them to some degree, which tells us this, that Paul's intention here was not just to give us a grocery list of attributes that we're supposed to look for as far as elders go. What I would say to you is this, is if you want to summarize all of it, we need to have the assurance that this man is not his own man, that he, in fact, is Christ's man, that he is committed to his Lord Jesus Christ, and that it is exemplified not only in what he says, but also in the manner in which he conducts himself, the manner in which he Behaves toward other people, etc., etc., etc. How is it, and we talked last week about this, that being an elder is something that you're actually called to? It's, It's something worth desiring. Paul tells us that in the very first verse of this chapter. It's something worthy of seeking after. But how do we know that we're called to be an elder? How do the people around us who have everything to do with us becoming elders know that you have, in fact, God has in fact set us apart for this particular uh, service? Well, we have to go on what we see and what we hear. And in a sense, this is what Paul is encouraging us to do. Assess. According to what we see with our eyes and the things that we hear with our ears. Just read through uh, chapter 4 in the NASB first. It's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he uh, desires to do. An overseer then and I want to note, I want you to note here, it says must be above. It says must. It doesn't say should be, ought to be, can be. Probably a good idea if he is. It says he must be. You need to understand that. He must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, uncontentious, free from the love of money. Well, we got partway through verse 2 last week, all the way up to the very last one, where we are told that the overseer is to be apt to teach or able to teach. Now, as people, we all teach. In other words, there's a sense in which teaching is part of the profession of every person. For instance, I would imagine that Danny and, uh, and, he- uh, and your wife, oh, gosh, Megan, <laughs> Danny and Megan, and Matt and Elaine, I remember that one. What they're doing now is they're teaching their children, right? They're teaching their children, they're training their children in the way they should go. So you need to understand that teaching is is something that we all do, but what we're talking about here is a special sense of teaching. It's a teaching that, some, that, that a man, and we, we made that distinction last week that we're talking about men exclusively here because the Bible is speaking exclusively about men, someone that is specially endowed by the Holy Spirit with a gift of teaching. And we need to understand that it's not just teaching in general. It's teaching specifically, it's teaching fundamentally God's Word. Someone that is able, capable at the very minimum of instructing people in the Word of God. In our denomination, we actually make a distinction between ruling elders and teaching elders, and we don't do that arbitrarily. We do that because Paul does later in chapter 5 of 1 Timothy. He talks about how some rulers are more involved, or some overseers or elders are more involved or more engaged directly in teaching than others. So in our denomination, we make a distinction between ruling elders and teaching elders. Teaching elders are basically the equivalent of pastors or reverends, if people want to call them that, or ministers or, or whatever you want to call uh, pe- uh, men of the clergy. This is what we're talking about. Their, 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 their main vocation is teaching God's words. Ruling elders, on the other hand, must also be able to teach. They must also have that attribute. Even though typically what you find is they are men who work in other professions and etc. But they still must be able to teach. You need to understand something. One of the main attributes of being an elder is you must be able to teach. Must be able to teach. And I just want to encourage you to consider this. I do it every single time. And nonetheless, there are always people that don't listen to the advice I give them. My advice is this. Is it would not be very good for you to nominate a man as, a, as an elder if you have never once in your lifetime sat under his teaching. Because if you do that, how do you know that they're apt to teach you? As we look at the office of deacon, what you're going to find is the attributes are overlapping there. In other words, it's almost like repeating a lot of the same stuff as far as character goes. But one of the distinctions there is this. It doesn't make any mention of deacons' teaching. Now, let me say deacons can teach, but let me just say this. Elders must teach. At the very minimum, they must, be, they must be knowledgeable enough in the Word of God to sit down and open it up and teach people from it. Rightly. Now, let me just say this, too. I really believe this is very essential, not as essential as, as knowing the Word, but also having a fundamental understanding of the theology of the Bible. What is it the Bible, what are, what are the doctrines that the Bible teaches Very helpful tool. And this is one of the reasons we have the training that we do. That's what we're going to be doing for the next year, is going through the Bible, first of all. And number two, studying theology. Preparing these men for the office they might take up. So, overseers... Must not only be able to teach, they must also not be drunkards or inclined to alcoholism on a regular basis. Does that mean they can't be recovering alcoholics? It doesn't mean that. What it means is this is people that are actively engaged in over-drinking. Uh, let me, I want to say this this morning because uh, you need, some of the things that I may allude to this morning would be probably ostracized in certain areas of the church. One of those is this, is you need to understand, the Bible does not condemn Christians or even leadership in Christian positions from having a little alcohol every now and then. As a matter of fact, wine was a very common drink. In the days of Jesus and the apostles. And let me tell you something. Jesus really did, if you take the word for what it says, Jesus really did turn water into wine. And Paul really does encourage Timothy later on in this epistle to take a little wine with water. So you need to understand something. That the Bible does not condemn drinking. What it does, however, is condemn over-drinking, people that, that in a sense alcohol has become their god. Well, Let me ask you something. Do you think that a man can be temperate, a man can be prudent and etc., if he's drunk a good bit of the time? No. And yet, let me tell you something, there are places in the church where they teach. They teach that alcohol is the thing of the devil and no one's ever supposed to drink a single drop of it. That it's anti-Christian to do that. Now let me tell you, when I was in Uganda last time, I was doing a seminar on the kingdom of God and we wrapped it up and then we are having a a question and, and answer section at the end of it. And there were some pastors there from the church plants that they had started from Busoro that had gone out into some of the other villages. And one of these guys, he asked me, and he said, I'm really troubled about something. And, and what I'm troubled about is this had nothing to do with what, you know, the, the, the seminar or anything like that. It was just this question that came out of nowhere. Uh, and he said, I'm really troubled because these American pastors refuse to condemn drinking absolutely, totally. It's such an issue in Uganda that there are many men who are alcoholics and they stay drunk all the time. Rather than doing work and taking care of their family, they, the men go out and they get drunk every day and the women do all the work because the men are not able to do it, and etc. So explain to me why pastors like you from America don't condemn the drinking of alcohol Completely. Well, one of the things I did is I assured him that alcoholism was an issue in the United States too, and he to understand it wasn't something that was just unique to Uganda. But at the same time, either this is the Bible, this is the Bible, this is God's word, and we go by what it says. We don't change the rules. We don't make up the rules, and etc. The way I look at it is this. There's a sense in which alcohol can be somewhat of a blessing. It's a blessing given by God as long as you use it rightly. So he must be able to teach. He must not be addicted to wine or alcohol. He must also not be a violent man. Or pugnacious. In other words, some with a, with a short fuse that very easily can wind up coming, becoming physical. Or you might think of him as possibly a bully. I shared with you a number of one of the most heart wrenching things sometimes for me, and at the same time, some of the most uplifting things for me have happened as I participated in the discipline of pastors in our presbytery. Hallelujah, thank the Lord. It's been several years now since we've had to deal with anything like this. Most of the time when we have had to discipline pastors, it's had to do with Sexual unfaithfulness on the part of the pastor in regard to his wife. In one way or another, pornography, maybe an adulterous affair, things along those lines. It's a really amazing uh, when you're confronted with something like this because very often it's the person that you l- thought would be least likely for something like this to happen to uh, Number one. Number two, it's devastating to the church that they, they pastor because most of the time this is done in absolute secret and most people have not one clue that anything like this would be even a possibility. It's not even on their radar that their pastor would be involved in something like this. And then when it comes out, they're just they're aghast they can't believe it. Their heart's wrenched, not only for him but for his family. Usually a wife there, sometimes still children at home, etc., etc., etc. You can imagine what an upheaval it would cause in that household. So most of the time, when we've done, th- we've had to discipline pastors. It had to do with sexual immorality. There's only been one exception. The exception was this. This was an older man. He had been in the pastorate for many, many years, probably 40 years. Uh, He was pastoring a church up in North Florida. Uh, And some information came to one of his parishioners, to one of the ladies, uh, that, that, that basically told her that her pastor was physically beating his wife on a regular basis. Let me just tell you this, the guy that was, was found guilty of this, he was guilty as he could be, he admitted it, that he did it, and he did it on a regular basis, and he did it because all the other guys did it too. Now, you can imagine our reaction to that, thinking, I've been angry at my wife, but I i, I might go home and slap her today, but I haven't done it yet. <laughs> Isn't that right, Lori? Okay, so when he said that, we're going, well, you may, you may think that's true, but No. <laughs> The the, the most amazing thing about it is he tried to make something as major and significant as this as nothing. It was just common doing. But here was a man who was bullying his wife. That's what we're talking about. Someone who's a bully. He was defrocked. That's how serious we thought it was. Not something easy to do. But let me tell you, if he he had been the epitome of every one of these other attributes we're talking about here, this one alone would have been sufficient to disqualify him completely from the office of elder. That's how we looked at it. So the overseer elder is able to teach, not addicted to wine, not a violent man or pugnacious man, but a gentle man. Now, I would imagine if you took some kind of a survey and asked people out there in the world in general, what would be some of the outstanding attributes of a man's man? Tough, rough, gruff. Doesn't take guff. Wouldn't find gentle in there anywhere. This is an area where we must not let the world determine to define for us what a man is, what a true man, who a true man is. Because true men are gentle. They know there's a place for that. And they, and they understand that there's nothing in the world that can replace it. It has to be there. It has to be a big part of the picture. Jesus describes himself as being gentle. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Gentleness is one of those fruits of the Spirit. So remember this, guys, when you're thinking about who to nominate for elder. Someone that has a gentle spirit. There's a gentleness about them. Able to teach, not addicted to wine, not a violent man or, or bully, but gentle. Also a man who is not quarrelsome or argumentative. Or as the NAS says, uncontentious. There's some people that seem to thrive on argument. There have been times when Lori and I have been around other married couples, and it was very disturbing because it was almost like they they spent their whole time throwing these verbal darts at each other, you know, trying to tear the other one down. As a matter of fact, there was a couple that they did that so much that we got to the point we couldn't even, we didn't spend hardly any time with them at all anymore because we just got sick of it. You felt like you were in the middle of this fight that was going on all the time. Remember what your mom and dad always told you, and that is that it takes two people to have an argument. Right? In other words, there has to be a willingness to argue to be a part of the picture. The elder is slow to speak and prudent when he does. He knows when to speak and he knows when to keep his mouth shut. It takes time. And my father used to tell me all the time, he said, Son, you've got to put your mind in motion before you put your mouth in gear. Most of you, some of you heard that a lot too when you were growing up. And this is one of the things that we're talking about. Because how many times in an argument did people say things they really don't mean? How many times do they say things that really later on they wish with all of their heart and mind and soul and strength they could take it back, but they just can't? Because once you say it, it is a done deal. You can't take the words and shove them back in your mouth. So what we're talking about here is men who do not enter into... Are there times when when arguments are necessary? There's a sense in which we say yes. When there's no other option. But the elder knows the difference between necessary arguments and arguments that are futile and meaningless and hurtful and harmful. He's also not a lover of money. What about the rest of us? What about all of us? You know, there's a sinful nature in every one of us that, that pushes us to want more than we've got. You know, and any time we want more than what we have, we're, basically what we're saying to God is we're not satisfied with what you've given us. We need more. We want more. We've got to have more. We live in a culture that thrives off of this stuff. We live in a culture that encourages it. If you don't believe that, just pay close attention to the advertisements you watch on TV or you see in some magazine or or whatever. I mean, how ridiculous is it that, you you know, they they give you this picture. If you just have a a Pepsi Cola today, that your life is going to be wonderful. And if you don't, you're going to have something that's not even worth living. And we see it just over and over. I, say, I said that because Michael over here works for Pepsi. So I, I, I was going to say Coke, but, but we understand it. We understand it. That there's all kinds of products out there, and there are people that are marketers, and their job is to sell the product to, to anybody and everybody that will buy it. Are you satisfied where you're at financially? Or do you want more? What about this? Could you settle for less? You answer that question and it tells us where our heart really is in regard to these things. The Lord taught me a lesson about money early on in my walk. When I first started seminary, when I first started feeling that calling, I made a deal with God, and that is, once we get so much money in the bank, then I'll be able to leave my job, and then maybe I'll be able to go to seminary, and etc. So what I did was I started scarfing money away building up our nest egg to give us that financial security that we needed. Well, some things came up and that money disappeared. And I never heard it said. I just had this feeling saying, now what are you going to do? Are you going to trust me or not? We live in a time, we live in a world, most of us, at a level that no group of people in the whole history of the world as a whole ever accomplished. We have far more than people have ever had on the average Sometimes I think that we all need to go to a third world country for at least two weeks so that we can see how the rest of the world lives. I'm not talking about going to Europe. I'm not talking about going to Australia or Canada or somewhere like that. I'm talking about going to Central America or going to Africa or going to Southeast Asia or somewhere where people live in real abject poverty, the majority of them. In Uganda, the people that we know there, that we love there, the possessions they have are nothing compared to what the average person in this church has. Nothing. Their personal possessions, if they could fill a shoebox up with them, would be an amazing thing. Not uncommon to see a man walking around with three pairs of pants in Uganda on at the same time. Now, big joke with me is I've managed twice to put on two belts and wear them to church without realizing it. (laughs) Scott reminds me of that every now and then. Okay? But they did it for a reason. What do you think the reason might have been? Why would they wear three pairs of pants? Okay, They they wear one pair that's got holes in it. They wear the second pair to cover up some of those holes. And they wear the third pair to cover up all the rest of the holes. Between the three of them. So you're not seeing skin. Do you think they want more? You bet your booties. Really, they believe this. They believe that you and I just walked down the street here and we just got money falling out of our pockets. Seriously, that's the way they look upon things. We have so much, and they have so little, and they constantly ask the question, you have so much, why aren't you more willing to give what you have? So how do we know if a man is a lover of money? We can ask some questions. One of those is, is he generous with what he does have? Is he he willing to help people out who are not as well off as he is? Is he one of those people who incessantly talks about financial matters, money, possessions, etc.? That's the only conversation he ever has with anybody. It's always about money and getting more of it. About this great deal that he just came across. And you need to buy into this particular stock because I just made a bunch of money in it. What about his willingness to lend to other people? Let me tell you, Lori knows this and my kids know this. My pet peeve is this. I will lend anything to anybody, but you better bring it back. If you don't, I'm gonna curse you. You've heard about my sander. It never showed up. Riley and Nancy bought me a new one for Christmas, so I don't have to worry about it anymore. But seriously, it's a, it's a man who understands something. And that is this. is Even though we said this last week, even though we talk about this is mine, that is mine, 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 mine. I pay for that. I own this, whatever. It's not our stuff. It's his stuff. What I'm telling you is absolutely, because we think this. You know, we're supposed to give 10% of what God, you know, brings our way back to him. But what I'm telling you is this, is that's only the beginning. We talked about how an elder has to be hospitable. One of the things that means this, he must be very willing to open his house up to other people. And when they come there, they're not treated in any other manner than as if they were blood family in a good way. In other words, they feel welcome in that home. And that's because that elder understands this, that it's not his house. It's God's house. And God has entrusted him with it to use it to his glory, not his own. Just remember this. Elders will have some say in how money that you give to the church is spent. Now, let me ask you something. Do you want men in office who are going to take that responsibility seriously? Or do you want men in office who are going to be so frivolous to, to, to maybe convert one of the offices to an elder's lounge, which we do talk about, <laughs> jokingly, presumably? Presumably. Or what about this? What about an elder that is just so serious about this this is God's money or a deacon, this is God's money, and and, and they're so chinchy with it that that when money really needs to be spent, it's not spent. And when we really need to pay a a visiting pastor or or, or something along those lines, they don't do it. They don't want to do it. Let me tell you, these guys worry about the money. The deacons worry about the money far more than the elders do. Our elders don't worry much about that realm at all, and I think that's the way it should be because we have other responsibilities that go in different directions. But I can understand that there are reasons to put money aside for building repairs and stuff like that, but to me, an ideal budget is one that comes out not in the positive and not in the negative, on the last day of the year. Because that money was given to do the ministry of the church, to do God's ministry. That's what it's for, and it needs to be used, not frivolously, not thrown away. And let me tell you, I've seen my share of churches wasting your money. I've seen it, and it made me sick. You've heard me tell you this story before, but it was at General Assembly several years ago, and one of the things we have to do there is we have to approve the budgets for all the different agencies, for m a for MTW, and, and all of that. And so the budgets are presented, and, and they're broken down into, you know, where is this uh, part of the money going to, and this, that, and the other, and part of it always goes to the salary for the coordinator, who's the head guy of the M&A or head guy of the MTW, and there was this young pastor who stood up in General Assembly, and he said this. He said, let me get this straight. You expect me to approve this budget and go back to my little inner city church, wherever it was. People who do not have two dimes to rub together and tell them that I approved a $200,000 salary package for the coordinator for MTW in Mission to the World. If you've ever been to General Assembly, you know that it's never silent. There's always somebody talking. There's always someone in protest. There's always someone that has the opposite view of somebody else, and they've got to make their view heard. There are people, every time you go, every time a question comes up, they are at a microphone. They have to put their two cents into absolutely everything we do. But let me tell you, at that moment, the assembly was absolutely silent. You could have heard a pin drop. The sad thing is not a single other person could have stood up and said anything. Five minutes later, it was back to business as usual. PCA, for its size, really is a very wealthy denomination. I don't know if you realize that. It is. Uh, In a lot of places, it is is a denomination more for the affluent. Presbyterianism has tended to be that way down through the generations. But not a lover of money. Man who's satisfied and generous. Well, we will move on next week. Uh, we might very well finish up elders and move on to deacons. We probably will do that. But in the meantime, what are you going to be doing? You're going to be giving some thought and consideration to whom you might nominate for office.